Coach Brad here. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about the Chasing Poker Greatness VIP newsletter. Hopping onto the VIP newsletter is the absolute best thing you can do to ensure this plucky little podcast keeps going indefinitely into the future. When you sign up, you'll get exclusive behind-the-scenes Chasing Poker Greatness content, access to the private Chasing Poker Greatness Slack community, notifications for product launches, entries into monthly free coaching giveaways, and much, much more. So if you're wondering what the absolute best thing you can do to support your favorite poker podcast, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP and access the newsletter today. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash VIP. And now, back to the show. Poker's legendary champions. Next generation stars and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, Coach Brad Wilson, and today's guest is the host of the Thinking Poker podcast and author of Play Optimal Poker Volumes 1 and 2, Andrew Bruckus. Andrew's another one of those human beings who makes you consider your personal beliefs. Recently on Twitter in a thread about the Daniel Negreanu WSOP meltdown, Andrew left me with this statement, quote, One last thought for you specifically, very few people have chased poker greatness as successfully as Daniel Negreanu, and this is where it got him, end quote, which was basically like throwing a grenade and leaving me alone in a room. So with that thought in mind, I just want to make it absolutely clear that one person's version of poker greatness does not have to be yours. It's a personal aspiration that each and every one of us, myself included, should consider deeply. And I genuinely hope that through this podcast, if nothing else, you will gain the necessary tools needed to answer this question for you and you alone. And it's my ultimate wish that you take special care on your emotional, physical, and spiritual health as you endeavor to chase your version of poker greatness. With that said, in today's episode, you're going to learn the surprising why behind the beginning of Andrew's poker career. Why Andrew has found that poker attracts the kinds of souls he tends to enjoy spending time with, an awesome tactic he uses to measure his level of play in live tournaments, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you podcaster, author, and thinker, Andrew Bruckus. Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. One of the original podcasters, you've been in the game for a long time, so I'm honored to have you on. And I guess first question, this is a really long time ago, so you may have trouble remembering, but how'd you get involved in poker? Like, what's your journey look like? My, I mean, my earliest poker memories were playing with, uh, with my grandparents. Um, my dad's parents, both my, my grandmother and my grandfather played, and we used to, you know, we would, uh, we were fairly close with them growing up and we would go over there for dinner like several times a month and uh, often after dinner there'd be some sort of 
like a family poker game. Um, so I mean, that was kind of where I like got a taste for it. What were you playing? How old were you? I would guess I was maybe like seven or eight when we started playing. And then we, I, we continued straight on through high school. Um, even at the point where I was like organizing home games with my friends, <laughs> I was still like also playing, uh, playing games with my, with my grandparents. That's my cool. grandfather was a better poker player. My grandmother actually was a very good card player. I used to play, um, rummy with her and her friends sometimes and um she was she was quite sharp it's uh impressive looking like i don't even know that i fully appreciated it at the time but looking back like now i have a better sense of like what card skill looks like she was actually a very good um a very good card player but then by the time i was in high school you know that was around when rounders came out i was already interested in poker but that certainly helped and um then i was uh, i had a home game with some friends that would play in my mother's basement uh, in college, there was a dorm game that I played in. I started playing free rolls online and then you know, graduated college. And I was kind of playing a little bit of poker online, just like small stake stuff. I was looking for work and uh, it quickly became clear that that was like 2004. So a great time to be playing online poker. Uh, and it kind of quickly became clear that I could just take the poker thing seriously and make more money than I was going to make at whatever jobs I was, I was looking at. What games did you play with your grandparents? I find this very interesting because... I too played seven card stud penny Annie with my grandparents and my family when I was, you know, seven, eight, six years old. And I remember loving playing cards and I didn't understand, like, like you said, the card sense, the strategic aspect of it. Uh, that didn't really come until I invested myself in the spades at like 14, but it, cards have always been a part of my life in some way. So what did you, what did y'all play? Probably a lot of that same stuff. I, I don't think we played Hold'em. I don't think that was really on, on anybody's radar at the time. Uh, we definitely played you know, Seven Card Stud and then some of the Wild Card. I do remember my grandfather hated Wild Cards. And in retrospect, I understand why. But at the time, it was fun. You know, was, as a kid, sure. I always wanted to play Follow the Queen and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, mostly draw games and, and stud games. Did he play cards like in card rooms? growing up like where did i don't Boris think so um he he was in the korean war um i believe that's probably where he kind of got started playing i mean he i do remember that he would he had sort of like character as a dealer like we, we we would rotate the deal but like he definitely dealt more than anyone else and he would be a little entertaining about it you know and it came up that was Ader from decatur or you know he, like he had a little bit of uh, panache when, when he was dealing and I, he must have gotten that from from somewhere i mean he went to casinos i don't know i don't i think he usually played blackjack though i don't think he was really playing poker in card rooms but I, I mean i wish i could ask him now he i was maybe teen or something I mean, it was before i, I really like, was taking poker seriously when he passed away so i didn't really like know to ask him about that kind of stuff but yeah yeah that's a good question actually i should i should look into that i just i remember my grandparents who were extremely conservative people in like all the areas of their life like i remember them like him saying specifically like seventh street down and dirty, like he knew terminology <laughs> that as a kid, it didn't really resonate with me. But when I got older, I was like, where did that come from? Like, were you playing at home games? Like after work, like where was your, his yeah. exposure to poker? Right. Because it had to come from somewhere. I do find it amazing how much poker jargon, uh, I mean, that's, that's somewhat more specific, but the extent to which poker jargon and poker metaphors, you know, suffuse, the, the English language, I guess, especially the language of politics, but uh, it would have like the buck stops here or um, fast and loose with the facts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all in is such a, such a widely used term and lots of, I mean, often wrongly used, but <laughs> nonetheless, it's, it's on people's radar. Just, you know, our, our intro, like bluffing, of course, is a, 
uh, which I mean, you bluff outside of poker, but still, I feel like the term is is from poker first, and then sort of applied to those other situations. I, I do find I mean, it's I guess very useful. Uh, it just demonstrates poker's usefulness. Yeah, it's it permeates a lot of our society in the way we speak and our language, and we don't, you know, people who are not immersed in poker maybe don't even realize the words they're using where they came from. But it's it's interesting thinking about. And I do kind of wish, um, I mean, there are other times when I would like to, when I'm talking to someone, I realize they don't know anything about poker, but I'm tempted to say, oh, well, we're already pot committed. Or, you know, like there's, there's <laughs> other times when like I have poker analogies ready to go. And, um, but I, I realize my audience is not going to uh, understand it in those terms. Yeah, not be too receptive. Yeah. So going back to your journey, you make a run for poker as your profession. How old were you exactly? What did that really look like when you started investing yourself and applying yourself to this game? Um, I would have been probably 21 and then like turning 22. So I, I guess I was 21 when I graduated college. Um, and I had worked when I was in college, uh, I went to the university of Chicago and I had worked with an organization called the Chicago debate league, which, um, I'd been a competitive debater in high school. Um, like on my school's debate team. And I'd really enjoyed that. And when I was in college, I worked with this program that was supporting um, debate programs in uh, public high schools in Chicago. And I was pretty involved. You know, I was working like 20 hours a week with them by the time I graduated. Uh, and then when I when I graduated, what I really wanted to do, I moved to Boston and because um, that's where my girlfriend was. And what I really wanted to do was start an urban debate league in Boston, like the league that had been in Chicago. But I didn't feel like that was something I could just kind of do right off the bat. So I was like, well, I'll do some work in the nonprofit sector and I guess like, get experience or whatever. And, and one day I'll start that, that league that I wanted to start. And um, I wasn't really having any success uh, looking for, for jobs. My philosophy degree was not in, in high demand. Uh-huh. Um, and then you know, I, I, was, I was playing poker and I, I realized, well, if I, I think I can make enough money playing poker part-time that I could just start that league now rather than look to get a job in, in someone else's uh, nonprofit organization, just start the one that I'm interested in. Um, and then, you know, hopefully the league, you know, if, I, if it's really successful, I can grow it to the point where that could actually be a job. And then, so my, the plan was never really like play poker indefinitely. The plan was like use poker as a way of um, feeding myself while I was trying to start this, this other organization that I wanted to become my full-time job. Um, that organization did actually get, so in, I started that in 2004, in 2010, or maybe it was in 2009, you know, it was at the point where we were ready to hire a full-time executive director. Uh, but by that point, poker was going like much better than I had imagined possible in 2004. Uh, and I was like, I don't know that I really want a full-time job right now. So we actually ended up hiring someone else to, um, to run the organization. <laughs> you uh, did so then, well that... <laughs> You did so well that you didn't want to quit to do the thing that was your goal in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, because when I was when I started doing poker, I was playing like five dollars sit and goes, right? Which I mean, you could make. I was making more money than I would have made at whatever job I would have got. I mean, I'd probably make twenty five, thirty dollars an hour just like multi tabling five dollars sit and goes, which is better than most of the stuff I, I could have gotten was like straight out of college in the nonprofit sector. And then, you know, by 2009, I was like, I had competed in the main event. And in fact, I had cashed in the main event three times. Um, you know, I was playing like five, 10, 
10, 20, no limit online. It was just like, it was much better money than I would have thought was like possible. Of course, that was like the apex of it. Like that was sort of like the very height of like right. my, my, my hourly rate was at its like absolute highest at that moment when I had to make that decision about whether or not to take the job with the, um, with the Boston Debate League. But, you know, poker's still going well enough. The Debate League is arguably doing better than it would have done with me as its director anyway. So I think it all worked out in the end. Probably so. And how is the Debate League going now? Is it, is it still in existence? Yeah, no, it's, it's thriving. Um, that, that's what I say. I don't know that I actually would have been the best person to run it. I mean, we ended up hiring someone who was a little bit more experienced, uh, as certainly much, much more experienced as an educator than I was. And the, we're now on the third executive director, um, myself being the first. And the, the, the third is much more experienced like in the nonprofit sector with you know fundraising and capacity building and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's quite large. They have... Uh, a multi-million dollar budget now. They're in most of the high schools in Boston. They're in many of the middle schools in Boston. They have, there's both an English language and a Spanish Spanish language division. Um, they're doing a lot of interesting, uh, interesting, they're working with several hundred uh, students directly. And then they also have a, like a teacher training program where they teach teachers to use debate in their regular classroom. So it's not just like the after-school debate program, but just for as part of like your regular coursework uh, Debate is, I, I would argue, a good way for students to uh, to learn things. So indirectly, and they're working with thousands of students that way. That's awesome, man. So you you built the thing that you wanted to build, and it's yeah. going. Like 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 we were talking. I guess that, that was off air, but we were talking about uh, it's more satisfying to build something than to uh, push money back and forth across the poker table. It definitely is. It definitely is. So you made the decision to stick with poker in two thousand nine. What happened? Like, what was what led to the Thinking Poker podcast from you know, 2009 to 2012 when you started the pod? How did Black Friday affect you as obviously somebody who's immersed in the game? Yeah, I mean, I played online poker almost exclusively. Uh, the WSA, I didn't even play like a full slate of WSOP stuff. I mostly just played the main event, a few events before the main event. I really didn't enjoy live poker that much. I was playing online pretty much exclusively. I was friends with... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm putting air quotes on this just because I didn't know him that well, but I, I knew Nate Mavis, who's my co-host on the Thinking Poker podcast, um, through the 2 Plus 2 forums. I had just, you know, I enjoyed his post on there. I reached out to him at some point. Uh, we met up during the WSOP, and then that kind of became an annual thing that we would like hang out at some point. And that was like, you know, once a year we would hang out together. But um, in 2011, both of us went pretty deep in the main event. I ended up in like the top 50. Nate was probably in the top like 150 or something. But, you know, we, we both made day five. And so we've been having dinner together every night, maybe starting day two or day three. So that and like kind of like the shared excitement of that and all, that was really what like solidified our, our relationship was both of us having a deep run in the main event that year. So we had we had that sort of like closeness. He encouraged me to start a solo podcast, which I recorded like two episodes. I never released them; they were terrible. Um, <laughs> and then he was like, "Well, if, you know, maybe if we did it together, you would have more, you know, success or, or whatever." Um, and that that was true. Like I think doing it by myself, I don't know that I would have had the like motivation to stick with it. And once you're doing it with someone else, then I feel like you know I'd be letting him down if I uh, slacking off. And it's just. You know, it's nice not to carry the whole thing on your shoulders. Yeah, I'm amazed at folks that can do the monologue style podcast because when I do an intro, for instance, for the listener who wants the behind the scenes take on like an intro, I write it out in a document and then I record it. It's typically 
one and a half to two minutes long. And it probably takes me 10 takes <laughs> having wow. a script to follow before I'm happy with the end result. So imagine me trying to, you know, bungle my way through a 30 minute show with just <laughs> me talking. Like I can't even imagine how long it would take me. It's so much easier for me to have a person to talk to bounce ideas off of them. It's just a, it's just way better for me personally. Yeah. And just having to come up with all the content yourself. I mean, it's with a guest, it's pretty easy. Especially, I mean, you get the right guests um, and they'll just talk, you know, like you barely have to do anything. You just like ask them a question every four minutes and then they're just like, they'll just go. And whereas if you have you're responsible for generating all that content yourself, I mean, I have to assume people would, would just decide I didn't have anything more to tell them after <laughs> they've been listening to me for uh, an hour a week for eight years. Yeah. We're both, we're both very similar in, in that, respect of, I don't have enough to talk about to do a solo show one day a week for a whole year. Like I would just be repeating myself over and over and over again. And that would be very stale, not very fulfilling for me. And I assume not very fulfilling for the audience either. I mean, imagine like a, um, and I'm I'm not by any stretch a Rush Limbaugh fan, but I think you have to be impressed by like the ability to just monologue for like four hours a day, every day. Like that's insane. Like, you have to be wired a certain way, I think, to number one, have the self-confidence that you have something valuable to say and hold people's attention for four hours every single day. It's, I'm not that interesting. (laughs) I feel like (laughs) I'm way too boring. But yeah, I do. I, I have respect for anybody that can do something like that, that has a daily, I have respect for Joe Rogan just doing his show on a regular basis that's like three or four hours long. Like he has guests that helps him out a lot, but it's still, you know, coming into our pre conversation before I hit the record button, you know, I, I told you that I I'm wanting to move to like a daily show, which includes a guest every single day. And even having a guest, you were like, yeah, that's, that's tough. You know, that's a, that's a lot of hard work. That's a big investment of time and energy. And, um, you're right. And that's only one hour a day, much less four hours. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Makes me think of like Dr. Fraser Crane and like the radio psychologists <laughs> right. have their daily shows every single day. Like how many of them are just dumpster fires and they're just awful? I, w- I, would, I would like to ask them that question. Like how many of these shows are you just not proud of and hate? Yeah, I guess you kind of, I mean, that, that might be part of the, the constitution of a person who's capable of doing that is they just they don't think in those terms, you know, they just, they do it and it's behind them and they don't evaluate whether it's <laughs> good or bad. They just do it. Right. But if you're somebody like Dave Ramsey, these people that have massive, massive audiences, you have to be striking a chord with somebody. Like yeah. somebody has to enjoy what you're doing else. You don't have an audience and you don't have a career. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So you started the thinking poker podcast, 2012, you got your co-host, what was the goal? What was the driving force or why behind doing the, doing the Thinking Poker podcast? We used to joke, although it's not even entirely a joke, that it was to have an excuse to talk to Tommy Angela, <laughs> which we were both fans and we had never actually met him or anything. He's actually become a friend. I've hung out with him in person a number of times. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that goal succeeded uh, beyond our expectations. But honestly, we had no idea that, you know, or no, we saw the potential for it to go somewhere, but it was entirely possible that we would only ever put out uh, five or 10 episodes and you know, we didn't, we wouldn't find much of an audience or we wouldn't enjoy that much. And that would just be the end of it. To have interesting conversations with interesting people, to have an excuse to, to talk to people. 
to have an excuse to talk to each other, probably. Like, I don't know. I don't have a lot of friends that I just like call up and talk to on a regular basis. Um, and it's not that I don't want to, there's just no impetus for it. Um, so having an impetus to like talk to someone once a week, I think that's uh, good for us. Yeah, for sure. It's great getting to know people and having awesome conversations. I think when I look back on my life and the things that I enjoy most are deep, interesting conversations with other human beings. And this is a great outlet to express that. Yeah. I mean, that would, that really was, was the central goal was just you know, to have yeah. interesting conversations with each other, to have an opportunity and excuse to reach out to some interesting people in, in poker, I guess a little bit also to, to try to talk to people who maybe weren't getting covered in poker media. I mean, we definitely talked to some people like Phil Galfond or so Tommy Angelo, like who are all over poker media, but we've also talked to some folks who are either you know on on the peripheries of the poker world or in parts of the poker world that don't get as much coverage in, in the regular poker media or just you know people who are who are not in the poker world really but enjoy playing poker. Um in fact actually you know I talked about rounders being an early influence. We've had Brian Koppelman on the show a couple of times. Um so again like <laughs> success beyond our uh, our expectations in in that regard. Yeah. I- yeah to, you know, trying trying to find like untold stories around poker for sure, and there's a lot of untold stories, right? About especially about the journey. You know, nobody goes to sleep at night on a couch and wakes up and they're at a final table of like a WSOP event or a WPT event. There's a lot of failures and struggles typically in that person's path before they get in the limelight and mm-hmm. um, find success in poker. And you know, I think that's one of the driving forces behind behind this show as well. And I was lucky enough to have Brian Koppelman on for a, an episode a few months back during COVID. He mentioned you, actually. So oh, nice. <laughs> mentioned Andrew Brokus and the so Thinking no, another, Poker Podcast. Uh, life goal achieved. There you go. <laughs> life goal achieved. What's been the most unexpected thing that's come from your journey through poker? Through poker specifically? Um, probably like the the friendships that I've made through poker. I, I don't think that's why anyone gets into poker is like, oh, I'm going to meet interesting people and, and make friends. But I do think that the poker table and the poker world, it attracts a specific kind of person that, um, that I like, you know, people that are a little weird or a little rough around the, the edges. Uh, there's even for people who really want to make money poker, it can't be like the very best way of monetizing your, your time. Like there has to be some reason, you know, it attracts a lot of people that for various reasons might not thrive in like a corporate or traditional uh, (laughs) environment. They don't, don't take direction well, or want to be their own boss. um, Want to make copious use of drugs, like (laughs) lots of, lots of reasons why that might not. But um, I even, even people that, I wouldn't, and this is part of why I've started to enjoy live poker more. There's also people that I probably wouldn't want to be friends with, like not really people I'd want to hang out with outside of poker, but I see their value as people. And I like that the poker table gives them a place to like be as weird as they are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I think, I mean, like there, there needs to be spaces for people to like, I don't know, to get out there like, competitive urges and their desires to be weird. And it's, it's a way, I mean, I do think for like slightly antisocial people that a lot of people maybe don't enjoy being around. It is a way of sort of like forcing people to be around them. Um, and I think that's kind of a valuable, like a, a little bit as professional poker players, I think we're doing a little bit of like social work or social service. 
Um, it's like, and it really, it is a thing. Like, it's not good for people to be isolated. And there are some annoying people out there that like, no one really wants to spend a lot of time with them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they find their way into a poker room. Yeah, I don't think so either. And, you know, that's, that's the great thing about poker is it's a meritocracy. And if you have the money, you put your money up, you sit down with everybody else and you, you play cards. And mm-hmm. through that, some of the more antisocial people you know, maybe they can make friends, maybe they can make connections in their own life. And yeah, that, that's a huge, that's huge value for them, just as human beings. Nobody needs to be isolated and by themselves all the time. I do love to, I mean, I think the, the it's such a diverse in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, so a lot of times we say diverse and we just mean, you know, oh, there's people with different skin colors or something like that. Um, and I mean, poker actually probably could use some improvement in like some of the more, uh, like race or gender, um, forms and. of diversity. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but like just divert, like in all sorts of different ways. I mean, one thing is I just have a lot more relationships with people who are like significantly older than I am. I don't think a lot of people from our generation are other than like your parents or your grandparents or something. I mean, you don't, there's like, we have, we're so sort of segregated and, and, and stratified by age. I don't think there's a lot of interaction, like intergenerational interaction, but at the poker table it happens all the time. And you do like, I just love seeing people where they just, they look like they're from totally different worlds. You know, see like a 70 year old white guy and like a you know, 25 year old black guy with like dreadlocks and you know, they'll like hug, they'll see each other and they'll hug. And I'm like, how is this happening? Like, it's great. <laughs> um, and you just, I mean, I, I guess there's probably other spaces where that happens, but I do think the poker room and like casinos in general and gambling, it's, you can't do it by yourself. And ultimately like gamblers want to gamble and they want it more than they want to, um, you know, enough to overcome whatever like barriers there are between them forming a connection with people who are different from themselves. Ultimately it's like, you want that side of the bet and I want this side of the bet. We're going to find a way to like get together and make it happen. And that'll override basically anything else. And it also allows us to, at least get a different perspective than the ones that we're used to, you know, and poker players, I think by nature are fairly curious. We want to know why the why behind the decisions folks make at the poker table. And this bleeds over into the why behind why are people religious? Why are people political? Why does society exist? Why is something happening? Like, what is the process behind the scenes? Like, always just asking why and being curious. And when you have the opportunity to interact with folks who you otherwise wouldn't, you get to share their perspective. You get to ask them questions and see things a little bit differently than maybe you would if you were not exposed to them, right? So in that way, I think, I've never really thought about it that way, but poker is huge. Yeah. And you get to, I mean, because it forces you to spend a little bit of time around them. And I mean, I guess ultimately if you're, if you're trying to make money, it also forces you to understand them. I mean, that's part of being a good poker player is you need to be able to get inside the person's head and sort of figure out what makes them, them tick. But, and, and you're doing that obviously for competitive reasons, but I do think it helps to build compassion or empathy a little bit. And I can definitely, I've, I've spoken a little tongue in cheek about like annoying people or, or that kind of thing. But you know, I, I can think of people that I've met at the poker table where they, you know, they, they've done things that were clearly inappropriate or, you know, like they've, they've gotten violently angry in a way that was like definitely not okay. But when you understand the person well enough, you're like, it's kind of hard to hold it against them because I'm sort of like, I, I do see where it comes from. And I see that it's something that you, like, you don't like being like this and it doesn't really feel like you can help it. I guess it's just like, it's a little hard 
a little harder to hold people's sort of negative traits against them and a little easier to be empathetic towards them um, because you're forced to like get inside their head and, and try to understand them. Um, I think it helps to build compassion and empathy. Yeah, uh, 100%. And it's just, it's like a side effect of <laughs> the competitive game, getting to understand how they think, how they approach life. And then you start realizing like, yeah, okay, I, I kind of understand this person and where they're coming from and their story and their belief system. And I think this is good for us as a society as a whole to bridge those gaps and to realize that like, yeah, somebody can have different beliefs than me and that's okay. And we can exist and we can laugh and we can have a good time and we can gamble with each other and that's okay. Right. Yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of a paradox here even um, with the, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, the like, oh, don't talk politics at the poker table kind of thing, where on the one hand, it's like, well, this this space, it's, it's one of the rare spaces where you do have people of, you know, differing, among other things, political ideologies, like interacting with each other in in a way that's not necessarily just like butting heads or that's not combative. Um, and that happens probably because you are avoiding certain subjects. Like avoiding the subjects is kind of what makes it possible to have the interaction. But then it also seems unfortunate once you have the interaction to avoid the subject. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, there's, there's some like important stuff. They're like, now that we have this relationship, like maybe we could try to talk about that important stuff. Uh, but then like that has the potential to destroy the relationship. I mean, I guess like the Thanksgiving table is the same, uh, the same fundamental problem within families. But uh, I, I do. That's a thing that I think about a lot. Yeah, it's easy to be emotionally triggered one way or the other when it comes to politics and religion and those types of conversations. And if folks would kind of just put those to the side and realize that Adam for Adam, we're not all that different from one another. And so keeping that in mind when other people have a differing viewpoint is just very important to me. Like we're all humans. We're all in this together. We're all a part of our own story. And um, when there's less fighting, less emotional, just uh, emotional triggering, it's just better for us overall, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I guess I still have that debater side in me of like, well, there's there's value in, in in bringing these things. Like, I think I probably have a higher level of comfort with like disagreement or like vocalized disagreement, outward disagreement with people maybe than, than a lot of people do. But, you know, I'm not fully interested in like, oh, well, we can get along as long as we just like put this stuff aside and don't talk about it. Because I think it's important stuff to talk about. Like, I think it 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 needs to be discussed. And I think it's good to have a place where people can talk about it in a way like because you know on twitter or something it's just like it's so antagonistic and everyone has their their lines drawn and i don't feel like a lot of like good conversation happens there and it seems like the poker table it does kind of create the conditions for a good conversation but it's almost like the only reason those conditions exist is because we have a rule about like not bringing subjects (laughs) right thinking poker podcast you said five to ten episodes could have gone on for five to ten episodes and then you called it you kept doing it for eight years. What are some of the lessons that you've learned with interacting, speaking with all of these people, you know, having conversations with your audience, stuff like that? Uh, I've, we've gotten a lot less scripted. So like the first couple of ones we did, you know, we were writing down like lists of questions and maybe that was valuable, you know, to sort of get over our, our nerves the first couple. Neither of us really had experience as, as interviewers. But we're we're much more freeform now. I mean, honestly, part of that is just it's less work. <laughs> I mean, not having to do the, those hours of preps. But I, I do think it's probably better. In most cases, it's better. 
Um, there are times, it, the less that I know about a person coming into the interview, then the more research I'll try to do on them in advance. But um, as much as possible, we we try to, re- and every once in a while, someone will ask like, oh, can I get a list of questions that you're going to ask us? And I'll usually give them some broad stuff like, oh, here's some things that I know about you that I'm interested in. Ideally, I'd learn a few things I didn't know about you that are interesting. So I don't want to limit it to just this this topic. But uh, yeah, we, we do try to keep it more like free flowing and, and take things where they go. We weren't sure that there was going to be an audience for that or that there was going to be an audience for like a long form conversation, especially since for it being a poker podcast, like we have episodes where poker does not come up very much, you know, where, where the conversation doesn't center very much on, on poker. And we weren't sure how much of an audience there was going to be for that. We knew it was interesting to us. And our hope was just, well, we'll do something that's interesting to us. And hopefully there'll be an audience for that. What's um, been the response? Sure that there would be. Uh, I think it's pretty popular. I mean, we get uh, like ten to twenty thousand listens per show, um, and that's without like you know, we were talking about this off the air. Also, like that's without really heavily um, promoting it. Like I think we we found a solid audience that just you know, likes what we're doing. Then they don't really need to have their arms twisted to listen to us. And it seems like I mean the the, the interactions that I have had with with people when you know they've introduced themselves when they see me at an event or they contact me on on Twitter or whatever. Um, a lot of my favorite shows are also their favorite shows, which uh, which I like. You know that that that's rewarding to say because it feels like then what I'm doing is speaking to people, right? It's not um, it's not like oh everyone likes the strategy shows, but I really like the interview based or you know the, the ones that are more interview oriented. It does seem like there's an audience for like exactly the thing that that we most enjoy doing. That's awesome. How does it make you feel when somebody comes up to you and mentions the podcast, sort of just out of the blue? It, it's extremely gratifying, you know, especially during the WSOP when um, it's so, it's just like, that's what playing a poker tournament is. It's like, mostly you're getting kicked in the head. So you know, you're like, usually during the WSOP, I'm like, sort of disproportionately, if someone's seeing me in the hallway, it's probably because I'm, you know, I, I could be on a break, but like most likely it's because I was recently from <laughs> the tournament. Uh-huh. Um, so like, it's a great way of taking the edge off of it. And uh, I understand that like some people reach a level of celebrity where it gets like tiresome to have people coming up to them. I am definitely not at that level. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, it's, so it's just like, you know, every time it happens, I'm like, oh wow, someone who like likes the thing that I'm doing. It's, yeah. Uh, that's just great. Yeah. It, it's always shocking to me when, I get feedback like, oh, it's my favorite podcast. I love your podcast. Oh, it's Brad. Like I'll hop in a Twitch chat when one of my friends is streaming and I'll say something in the chat and they're like, oh, hey, Brad, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird that like people recognize yeah. my name and who I am from the, the thing that I created, um, but weird in a cool way. Yeah. I, I did the same thing about the scripted questions. I, like I have a, a template that I typically follow. And what I found was like, if I asked somebody this question, after five episodes, it was like, when you think of poker greatness, who's the first poker player that comes to mind? It's like, oh, we got Doyle and Phil Ivey over and over and over and over again for the same exact reasons. So that's not really a compelling oh, yeah. question. I said those wouldn't have even been in my top 10. Yeah, well, you know, it, it is what it is. But like, it's just the same answers over and over, right? And yeah, yeah. like, I love following my curiosity. And that often leads me to a path that is completely separate from my template of questions that the audience tends to enjoy as well. So I think it's a method that keeps things fresh and new and it's not repetitive over the long term. Actually, they probably would be in my top 10 now that I think about it, but <laughs> they're, they're, it wouldn't be the number one name. Yeah. Uh, 
what's funny, you know, the whole Bill Perkins and Jungle Man thing, I did a tournament where I like seated everybody and Jungle Man was like four through seven <laughs> ranked. And Bill <laughs> Perkins called him the seventh, like a top seven poker player. And I was like, damn it. I, ha- I should have just yeah. said, I, I, you know, I, I had it right in front of me. But yeah, so when you think of joy in your career through poker or the podcast, what's the first memory that comes to mind? I really like hero calling. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I often say, I think it, it's unfortunate that hero calling feels so good because it's not really that often a good idea. And um, hero folding is sort of an underappreciated skill. It doesn't feel that good because the pot gets pushed the other direction, but it's like at least as important as, as hero calling. But um, the very first WSIP that I played in 2006, I really had no business playing the main event. Like, you know, I, my, my total bankroll was maybe like $40,000, but I won a um, $3 rebuy on Poker Stars and got a, uh, got a seat in the main event, uh, which was just like mind blowing by itself. Like, you know, I was, I was a small stakes player. Holy shit, I'm playing the, the main event of the World Series of Poker. And then um, it was very early in the tournament, maybe like level two or level three. I ended up making a river call for like 25% of my stack with King High. And um, and it was right. And so like that was just like amazing feeling of just like knowing that I had, the, that I like wasn't intimidated by the stakes. I was just like capable of making a good day. And I had 100% of myself. I hadn't like sold off action or anything. And so like it was... It was the whole thing. like I didn't want the experience to be over. I had no thought that I was ever going to do this again, you know. So I definitely like didn't want the tournament to be over on day one. I didn't want to lose the money, and it felt really good to you know still be able to make a good decision and like be calm under pressure, which I think is I mean, some of the best skills you can take out of poker is that ability to like keep a clear head despite having a lot at stake and you know being rushed for time. Yeah, I've said a lot of times that the times when I'm most nervous in poker are when my friend is at a huge decision in a giant yeah. pot. Yeah. Whenever it's me, it's like everything fades away and mm. there's just me in the spot and there's really not that much nervousness. It's calm. Um, can you describe how you feel when you're at a decision for a big spot with, you know, a hand that, other folks would likely just chunk right in the muck instantly. Like when these situations arise, how are you feeling in these moments? I'm immediately skeptical of like, cause I know that I'm always looking for excuses not to fold. Um, and so I'm always like, if, if I'm aware that like most people would just instantly fold this, you know, I'm trying to tell myself like, you probably should instantly fold this too. <laughs> you know, like, um, but in, in terms of being calm, what, what I thought of actually, were, were you at the WSOP this most recent year? No, I don't really go to the WSOP. Um, okay. I'm um, so pretty much a straight cash game player. So there, well, they have cash games out there too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there, was, um, there was an earthquake during the, um, during my day one of, of the main event. And I was actually in the, it was the, the biggest decision that I had faced all day. Um, I was in the tank facing an all in on the turn in like a multi-way pod, one player's already all in. I have a big draw, I'm facing a shove. And um, so it's already like, you know, a decision. I'm, I, like it's a tough decision. I'm thinking about it. And then an earthquake happens. <laughs> like, how is this real? Like, how is there an earthquake happening? Well, so like, 
in theory, like I've talked about this with other people since, like other people who were there during the time who were like, oh yeah, I got the hell out of the building right away. And like nothing about that even. I mean, I, I maybe if everyone else had started like fleeing the building, I would have also. But I essentially just like put that aside. I was like, well, I mean, I'm going to have to make this decision before I deal with this whole earthquake situation. <laughs> so, you know, and as if no one else is like running out or like most other people aren't running out, I probably don't need to either. So let's just like forget about the shaking ground and like the shit that might fall off the ceiling and hit your Herd head. mentality, because what does anybody know? Like nobody, nobody knows if anything's going to happen, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess I think that most people have a pretty high threshold against running out of the building. So like if everyone is running out of the building, then like it's probably really bad and like I should too. Yeah, um, I, you're right. It doesn't go in the other direction. Like it's, it's certainly possible that you should be getting out of the building, even though no one else is. Uh, but I do think if everyone else is, you definitely should be. <laughs> For sure. So you, you're at this decision during the earthquake. What happened? What was the result? Um, I ended up folding and in, in, in retrospect, I actually was, was, I mean, <laughs> for all my big talk about like thinking calmly, um, I actually realized after the fact I'd been miscounting my outs and it was actually a more clear fold than <laughs> I'd appreciated. Um, I actually, I would have gotten there on the river in one very large spot. So like, because there was an all in player, I did get to see what the river card was, but, um, yeah, it turned out I was not thinking as clearly as I, um, as I thought I was because it was, it was not as close of a decision as it seemed at the time. Yeah. I mean, this happens too, right? Where you have some time to reflect off the table and you look at it differently than you did on the table. And I've, I found that like sometimes when I go back in a database and I'm looking at cash game hands that I've played and that are like super unconventional that tend to work out, I'm reviewing the hand and my thought is like, it's hard to even get in the space that I was in while I was making the decision to even reverse engineer why I made the decision, whether it be like yeah. a timing tell or just some bit of information based on metagame, historical, whatever, that led me down the decision tree that I went, that that's an interesting thing that I find in my own personal career. It's like, sometimes I do things, and then I don't even know why after the fact exactly what led me down that decision, but I did it just because I typically trust myself, um, maybe more so than I should in poker, but... I just, I've always been the type that like, okay, if, if I feel like I'm going to do something, like if something feels right, then I'm going to do it. Win, lose, or draw, especially in a cash game setting. Tournament, you have ICM considerations and stuff like that. Cash is just like straight EV. But yeah, it's just, uh, I've always wondered if other people are the same. You know, they feel that same calm come over them in these moments. My pulse quickens a little. I can feel like some adrenaline starts spiking that maybe I need a little bit more focus for this decision so that I can, you know, really trust myself if it's a fairly significant decision with a fairly shitty hand. Um, (laughs) And I I can feel the difference. You know, the the times that I have played games that were big enough that like I wasn't fully clear headed when I was making a decision, you know, I, I'm very strict about whether I really want to remain in that game. And I'm careful about, you know, no matter how, how good the game is, I'm careful about how much money I put on the table because I don't want to end up in a situation where I am thinking about it in any terms other than eBay. You know, I, I don't want to be like, oh, it feels like a good spot, but I just don't want to lose X dollars here. You know, like I don't, and I, I mean, I think everyone has an X. Like I don't, I, maybe maybe there's some real sociopaths out there who don't, but like, I think most people have an X. So it's just a matter of like not, and even if it's within your bankroll, it's still, it's, it's I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm at a point where, my skill is, is, you know, what's keeping me from playing bigger stuff more so than my bankroll. So it's possible for me to end up in a game where like, even though I have a bankroll for it, the, the sheer amount of money that's involved could be, 
you know, an uncomfortable situation. And I mean, in, in tournaments, you sell action, to try to avoid those situations. Um, in a cash game, it's more a matter of like, I mean, when, when you're playing like an uncapped game, being careful of how much you choose to buy in for in the first place, recognizing that like, ideally, you're going to double that. So like, you can't, you don't necessarily want to start like right at your pain point because uh, you, you can't take the money off the table later. Exactly. Like there's going to be a straddle. The game will likely get bigger typically in a cash game. So right. at some point it reaches a threshold where risk aversion comes into play and can affect our decision-making process. I, I've had conversations with friends where they've made the statement that a lack of risk aversion in poker is almost like a superpower to really talented poker players. And I actually believe that <laughs> it's uh, when, when yeah. you're not risk averse and you are able to play with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table and still make clear headed, good decisions. Like that's feels like a superpower to me. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think it, it, I mean, it definitely comes more easily to some people than others. And some people they're probably just like whatever X they can achieve as their like comfort level is, is lower than it's going to be for some other people. I do think like a lot of the people that I coach are, are recreational players who are, um, they're plenty wealthy. You know, it's, it's not a matter like if they're just playing like a two, five game or something like the amount of money involved is not really going to affect their life, but they still end up being risk averse. And I do think that, um, I, I mean, I think there are things you can do to limit that. Like I recommend to a lot of my, even recreational poker players, like they should have a dedicated bankroll. They should bring enough money with them to the casino. Like I I like to say, I like to be able to have a bad night and still have room to have a bad night. Like I don't want to just, you know, if you only bring $2,000 to play two five, you're playing with a thousand dollar buy-in, you lose one buy-in and all of a sudden you're on case money. You know, like it feels like $2,000, it's 400 big blinds. That should be plenty to play with. And like, it's rare that I have a negative $2,000 night playing two five. But I mean, you certainly could. And so I think that, you know, you should bring enough money that you can afford to have that happen. I mean, at some point that starts to get logistically challenging and that's why there's boxes at the casinos. But I think like, even for people who have a lot of money, there's still a risk aversion that can come up just as a result of sort of like, how conveniently can you put your hands on money? And I think there's a lot that people can do to raise their X uh, in terms of like what they're going to be comfortable wagering. I mean, I do think there's a superpower component to it, but I think there's a lot that people can do to make themselves more comfortable with the risk involved also. For sure. And it's the lens in which you're viewing the game. Like if it's recreational, it's a hobby, you're doing it for fun and you realize you're likely to lose money, then okay, you know, you show up with 2K, play your 2.5 and whatever happens, happens. If you're taking it seriously, then you need to come prepared. You need to be as prepared for situations as you possibly can. And you're absolutely right. Like figuring out logistically, how do I get more money here? How do I put myself in a spot where I can lose a few buy-ins and not really care, not feel like I'm out of action if I lose this buy-in, right? Let's go to the opposite question uh, of joy. When you think of pain in your poker career, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Probably mistakes I've made to get myself eliminated from the main event of the World Series of Poker. Uh, I've I've been fortunate to be deep in it a couple of times, and every single one of them, well, at least three out of four, have ended in a way that um, I don't know that my play was like unimpeachably bad, but it wasn't unimpeachably good either. Right? I mean, I kind of say as much as people complain about like getting bad beat. I would love to just get bad beat out of the main event. Like almost every year I've been eliminated from the main event. There's been a component of like, oh, maybe you could have done that differently. Like there's been something to lose sleep over. Um, 
I think those are often the most, and I mean, that, that is sort of what tournaments are engineered for. And especially the main event is it is like, you know, it, it's a higher stakes than what I'm usually playing. It's, um, it's also like the once a year, uh, sort of opportunity of it that once it's over, it's, it's one of the times that I most enjoy playing poker. So there is sort of like the disappointment. And then when you are really deep, like you know, this year I made day five and you've got all these people, you know, people listen to the podcast or follow me on Twitter. Like there's a, there's a hundreds of people who are like invested in this thing who are, you know, on day five, they're like, Oh, good luck. We're going to be following. We're gonna be rooting you along. It's so fun to have all these people like there for you. And so it's just an immediate adrenaline crash when it's over. All of a sudden, you're like, it's just been like five days, really more than that, because you have your days off also. So it's been like a week plus. All you've been focused on is just like doing well in this tournament. And of course, on day one, you don't really have any delusions about doing well, but you get to day three, you've got a lot of chips. You're like, oh, I could really do something here. Day <laughs> yeah. four, day five, there's all this excitement building up, all these other people excited on your behalf. And then it's just like, snap your fingers and it's over. Yep. And it's just like, it's, it's such a total crash. Yeah, that's the. So, when it comes to reconciling that pain of making a questionable decision to exit a big tournament, you've been in this a long time, right? Like this has been a lot of your professional life is playing poker. For folks who are less experienced, that feel bad when they do something questionable to bust in a tournament. How would you suggest they reconcile that bad feeling within themselves? That's a good question. Let me answer a slightly easier question first, okay. which is when you make a mistake and are not eliminated from the tournament. So you still have chips left, but you know you've misplayed or you suspect that you've misplayed a hand or you've done something. Um, it's really important to not ruminate on it in the moment, right? Like you want to learn from your mistakes. The, the main thing that I do, I just, I'll just write down as many of the details of the hand as I remember right away. And that's my commitment to look into this later. And it also means that gives me permission to put it out of my head now. Because if you're going to keep playing, you don't want to be focused on that hand, you know, whether you could have done something differently an hour ago. You need to be focused on you know, playing the cards that are in front of you right now. So I find it useful to make a commitment to myself. I'm going to look into it later, and that helps me not worry about it now. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, You'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. 
one final time. That's pokerwithpresence.com. So I want to go down the rabbit hole before you answer the bigger question here. What does, when you say you write it down to look at it later to make a commitment to yourself, what does it look like when you write a hand down? Like what are the elements that you're trying to capture? So I'm actually pretty good at remembering if it's a significant hand, you know, I'm not going to remember like a random, you know, small pot that I played, but if it's, you know, a significant hand like that, honestly, I'm going to remember most of the details anyway, but you know, I'm going to write down what the cards were positions. I might, you know, forget whether I was under the gun one or under the gun two, like that kind of thing. Um, so I'm going to write down those, those details. I don't really find that I need to record, at least if I'm going to look at it recently, um, I don't need to record my process. Like that'll all come back to me when I look at it. I'll remember who the villain was. And, you know, if, if he did something that, you know, he moved his hand in a certain way and that affected my decision or like, I'll remember that kind of stuff. I don't generally find the need to write that down. It's more the details that are like a little bit relevant, but not that and like whether the turn was a deuce of diamonds or the deuce of clubs, that's the sort of thing that's most important for me to write down. And do you have an idea of like where the pain point is, where the, the question that needs answering is on reflection do you, or do you write that down? I, I usually know. It's not that often that there's like multiple points in a hand where I'm like, oh, I really have no, I mean, it's not that I don't like make small mistakes frequently, but you know, something that's big enough that I'm like, oh, I really need to look into that one. It's pretty rare for that to come up twice in the same hand um so i I usually know like there's there's a reason why this one's getting written down right and yeah i just i I think the audience might be a little surprised that like so deep in your poker career there's still these questions right there's still these uncertainties that you have and that everyone has playing poker i've said many times on the show that i've never played a perfect session I've never played close to a perfect session. And there are multiple decision points every single session where I am unsure of what the right thing to do is because we are making hundreds and thousands of decisions in every single poker session that we play. So sort of leaning in to that uncertainty that, yeah, you're going to have questions. Sometimes they're not even answerable questions. You have to accept this. If your path is poker, you have to accept that. And they're always going to come so don't think there's like a magic bullet solution that just rids you of all of these problems because it, it, it doesn't exist, right? It's part of the gig. Yeah, the, um, the introduction to, um, I, I published a book last year about game theory and the introduction was about like, I think game theory is about as close as you can get to like answers to those questions and it still doesn't answer them, but it's as firm a footing as you can find for, um, for getting an answer to a question like, is it okay to shove here? You know, it, it, it still can't take into account the, you know, that the guy twitched his nose and maybe that meant you should or shouldn't have shoved, but it can at least tell you like, Oh, this is a reasonable hand to think about shoving here. Or, you know, you better have had a damn good read to make that shove because the solver says negative 20 big lines. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it can give you, but even then, like, you know, it's only as good as your inputs. Like there's, there's, you, you don't get answers to these things. And I do find for a lot of people, you know, they, they really, I think the way you put it of, you know, needing to embrace the uncertainty or lean into the uncertainty is important uh, because I, I do lose some respect from people for people when they like, you know, they ask you what you had in a spot because it's, it's, it's so much the wrong question to ask. And what that tells me is you're just not comfortable with the uncertainty, you know, because you're, you're trying to 
pacify yourself with like a fake kind of certainty where, you know, if, if I show you that I had it, that it doesn't mean you made a good fold. I could, you know, you're playing against my range or even there's a, you, there, there is no certainty. <laughs> you, I mean, you can ask someone, you could ask me, what would your range be in that situation? I might lie to you. I might not know myself. Uh, I might be wrong about my, what my range would be in that situation. There's just, you know, there, there is no getting answers to those, those questions. You really just have to get comfortable with it. Uh, I mean, I guess the, the one thing that I, and this is another like tummy angelism, um, is that like, that's, it's an opportunity to be better than other people. Right? Like no one gets answers to these questions. And so an opportunity for you to have an edge over the people you're playing against is to be more comfortable with the uncertainty than they are. Um, and that's, you know, psychologically, that's an advantage in the game. For sure. And when you were talking, I, I realized something that's fairly comical to me is that like, you know, you said, maybe I don't even know what my range is in that spot. And the best players of poker sort of hilariously are able to produce ranges for their opponents that construct ranges that are likely better than the rate than the opponent themselves can construct for themselves in these situations. Right. Yeah. And that's how they get a lot of edge because they construct the range. You know, I construct a range for my opponent and I realize, Oh, you don't have any value here. So therefore I'm going to, you know, call you down super light. They don't actually realize that they are lacking value in this spot. If they were aware, then they might not bluff, right? <laughs> they, they might not actually pull the trigger, but just a, a little funny insight that I had. Yeah, no, I like that. So speaking of improving, did we answer the big question, by the way, of like, how do we reconcile these doubts when we bust a tournament and do something? Yeah, hold me to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm um, going to come back to it. There, 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 was, there was something pretty concrete that I was doing for a while. Um, it's not really something I struggle with as much anymore, uh, except for those like really big spots, like you know day five main event kind of thing. But um, the something that I started doing for a while was I would have a particular skill that I wanted to work on in a session. Uh, like you know, I, I want to work on value betting decisions. I don't want to miss any value bets this session. <clears throat> and I put a little app on my phone called Click Counter. Which was just it, just you know, sort of like a gym coach would use if you were running track or running uh, running around the track, and he wants to count how many laps you did. So you just press the volume up button, it increases the count by one. Press volume down, it decreases by one. So every time that I play a hand perfectly, I or I'm, I'm I'm confident I played it perfectly. I you know click click plus one. The only time I get a negative one is if I mess up the one specific thing that was supposed to be my focus for the session. So if I think I made a bad river call or I'm not sure I should have called that river, whatever, that's not the thing I was working on. It's, it's a zero. It's not a negative one. Only if I miss a value bet or make a bad value bet or whatever, that I'm like, am I getting the negative one? Uh, and the, the thing that I think a lot of people will find useful about this is that getting seven deuce offsuit is an easy plus one. Uh, you know, like, it, especially in a tournament, it can get frustrating. You get a bad run of hands and it feels like, because you know, you, what you're trying to do, if, if you're in that mindset of trying to win the tournament instead of trying to make good decisions, then it's frustrating to get dealt the run of bad cards because you're like, well, it's hard to win the tournament when you get seven deuce every hand. But if you're playing the click counter game, you know, that's the best way to have a perfect half hour is just to get dealt a bunch of bad hands. Like, I, I very rarely misplay seven deuce. I misplay pocket aces all the time. Yeah, that's a greatness bomb and it's a way to positively reinforce yourself when that's things- right. I, I wanted some form of reinforcement that wasn't tied to money because the, the the way money flows in poker it's such a uh such a weak indicator of whether or not you're playing well right you you can make all good decisions and 
get absolutely smashed day after day after day, which, you know, causes you to question the meaning of life. (laughs) It causes you to question like, (laughs) do I know anything about anything? But this is our humanness coming out and that, you know, we're not exactly designed to be able to navigate this game super well with our emotions and just our biases as human beings that have allowed us to survive all of these years. So again, it's normal, right? All these feelings of inadequacy over time, it's just, it's a part of the process. And you know, something that you said, I want to circle back to, you know, you're talking about the ra- or the ranges and like, you know, you might not even know your range. The range changes based on silly things like emotional stability for the day. There, there's a book, uh, the Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin, where you know a famous chess player meditates before every one of his chess matches, and he does it for like an hour. And his goal is to understand how he's feeling that day, so that he can use that in his chess strategy in his chess match. So, like if he's feeling aggressive, if he's feeling more passive and more calm, like how does this affect the decision making process? And these emotions come into play in poker all the time that dramatically change your range in very similar situations just based on how I feel. Like, am I having a bad day? Am I unfocused today? Am I angry about, you know, losing a sports bet that just happened on TV? Like, it's kind of silly, but these factor into the decision-making process. Yeah, w- one of my best, uh, like, cues that I should that I should quit. I, I think in general, I'm pretty good at keeping a like emotional equilibrium. And I rarely find that I need to quit because I'm like frustrated and not playing well. But if I really find myself having unkind thoughts towards, towards <laughs> opponents, you know, where I'm like rooting hard for someone to lose or like trip when he's getting up from the seat or, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, that's a pretty good cue that I need to at least like take a break and reset. Like if I'm really like angry at someone, um, yeah. that, that something's off. That's great for, you know, an awareness indicator that you're not firing on all cylinders. It's also important to keep in mind, you know, to watch for these indicators and the people you're playing against, just how they're acting, their movements, how they're talking. Like typically if somebody's angry or off kilter, you know, on tilt, you can tell and take this into consideration when you're making decisions. Like, should I be bluffing somebody that's on raging tilt? Probably not. It's probably going to lead them to having a wider call range and spots, depending on how they're constructed. Some people go on tilt and fold even more. This is kind of the beauty of poker. And what I've always loved about the game is there's all these variables. Having a perfect strategy is impossible. It's going to change. Even knowing whether or not you made perfect decisions is impossible to know. So it's just a, an aspect of the game that I've always loved and found challenging is navigating these variables in the best way that I possibly could. Yeah, I agree. What's something you think folks who are chasing their poker dreams don't think about enough? What their poker dreams actually are. You know, I, I ask when I start working with a new coaching student, that's usually the, one of the first questions I'll ask them is like, what are your goals? What are you looking to get out of poker? And I rarely accept an answer like, oh, I just want to, you know, I want to be one of the best or something like that. Uh, I mean, I, I just, I don't think most people really do. Um, and if you did, like, you wouldn't just now be getting coaching. Like you would have been, you would have done that a while ago. Um, I think that's like an easy answer for people who haven't really thought about what they're trying to accomplish. But like, 
what it really takes to be the best is like you I mean if you're not a professional poker player that's not even on the table for you like if you're if you have a day job and you're just like playing poker even if you're taking it somewhat seriously 10 15 hours a week like being the best can't possibly be your goal because like you would need to be playing much more than 10 to 15 hours a week if you wanted to be the best. So, I mean, there's being the best I can be or something like that. That's still a little vague for, for my tastes, but I think, I think it would do a lot of people good if they would um, think a little bit more about like why exactly they enjoy poker, what their goals actually are. And that can influence your game selection. It can influence decisions about how much you buy in for, how often you play, how long your sessions are. I think there's a lot of things people could do that would probably cause them to enjoy poker more and actually play better um, if they were a little more upfront with themselves about I mean, even most professionals. Like like I, you know, I said earlier, it's it's not the single best way to make money. Like there's some reason why you want to make money at poker as opposed to making money at derivatives trading or something. You know, like why why poker for you specifically? And I think ironically, the people who are the best at it, um, they do have an answer as to like as to why it's poker specifically. Uh, you know, they're they're not just sort of just you know generically trying to be the best. Like there, there's some reason they're attracted to poker. What's your reason why you're attracted to poker? Um, I actually had a funny conversation with a seven year old about this. He asked uh, why I like playing poker, and I said, "Well, it makes me feel smart." And he asked, well, why does it make you feel smart? And I said, well, you know, there's, um, everyone's trying to win. And when there's money involved or a lot of money involved, everyone's trying hard to win. And in order to win, you have to be even smarter than they are. And a lot of times they're smart people. So it makes you feel very smart to, you know, to outsmart smart people who are trying to be smart. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, well, why do you want to be smart? And I, I said, I don't know. And he said, then you're not smart. <laughs> Owned. Yeah, exactly. Owned by the seven-year-old. Yeah, getting- that's a big part of it. I mean, I've I've always enjoyed puzzles. Like I used to do, I used to get books of logic puzzles when I was a kid. Like at the grocery store would sell these, um, and I would just like do logic puzzles for fun. Same. So I do, um, and that's something I encourage. Like I work with a lot of recreational poker players who want to like they want to take poker very seriously, but they're not looking to quit their day jobs either. And one of the um, tricky things for them, I think, is they've been playing recreationally for a long time. And even if you're not literally going to be a professional, if you want to make money at it, you've got to approach the game the same way a professional would, right? You can't do the things that were fun for you as a recreational player. I'll just call a raise with 10, seven suited. Maybe I'll make a flush. Right? Like that's, you can do that if you're just playing for fun, but if you want to make money, like you can't be in that mindset. So the question is, how are you still going to enjoy the game? If you're not, if you can't do the things that originally attracted you to the game, and the way I think about it is, you know, you can still get enjoyment from poker, but it's not going to be the gamblers. It's not going to be the enjoyment of scratching a ticket or spinning the wheel or whatever. It's going to be the enjoyment of doing a puzzle. It's the enjoyment that someone gets out of a crossword puzzle, or in my case, a logic puzzle um, of there is a right solution here. Your job is to find it. And you've got information, there's clues. I mean, you get to play detective. You, you can put together the clues and try to solve solve the mystery. Uh, and that's got to be where the enjoyment comes from. It, it can't be just riding the riding the waves of wins and losses. Yeah, that's where the enjoyment's always come for me. Just looking at it like a puzzle, trying to figure out the puzzle and being better than my opponents at figuring out the puzzle, right? And also myself being a puzzle that is very difficult for them to figure out um, yeah. is the other side of the coin. I, I don't know about you, but when I go see like a mystery, like a whodunit movie, these are like my favorite types of movies, like Knives Out came out last year. Like, I just love it. I love the puzzle. I love playing detective and looking at the clues and trying to figure it out. 
I could spend hours with a logic puzzle, just like thinking about all the different variables and how does this work? And I think that that's probably a very necessary component to being successful at this game over the long term is loving figuring these types of things out. Yeah. I mean, you do, you have to figure them out. And if you don't enjoy it, I don't think you're going to want to keep doing it. Yeah. What's the point? Right. (laughs) Right? Like, again, there's nothing wrong with playing poker recreationally and understanding. I mean, if you want to gamble, there's like, it's, it's gotta be, I I never really played blackjack, but like blackjack has to be more fun for gambling than poker does. Constant action. I mean, constant action is better than not constant action. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, it's expensive to play poker like it's blackjack. I mean, we've seen people do it, but it's a very expensive hobby. Yeah, but it, things come into play like we've, that have come up in this conversation, like interacting with fellow human being, camaraderie, the social yeah. aspect of it that people <laughs> like a lot more than like just blackjack, right? You get to talk to yeah. people, you get to meet new people, have good conversations. And I think there's something about competing with your fellow man versus the faceless casino that appeals to a lot of folks. Yeah. We, we've interviewed a few people, um, you know, who are like extremely successful. Brian compliments a good example, but you know, people who are like extremely successful in some field outside of poker. And you know, when you ask them why poker, you know, you have so little free time. Uh, why is poker like the thing or one of the things you choose to do with that little bit of free time. And that really is, you know, they, they want to test themselves against the best. And, you know, so we've talked to people, amateur players who played like the million dollar WSOP event. Right? And, you know, it's like, they, they know they're playing against the best players in, in the world and that's what they want. Um, and I, I think about that a lot because I don't think most people who are net losers of poker are delusional. I mean, we, you, you see that, but I, I think most people, they have a reason why they're there and why they're willing to spend money on poker. Um, I, I don't think it's just that they're, they're convinced that they're consistently getting unlucky and they're actually plus EV players. And I, I do think for a lot of them, it's that the social element of it, you know, that's, that's the reason that they're there. Yeah. I, I am reminded of this. Like I went to a tournament series maybe last year, or the year before I almost never go to them, but I went to Cherokee um, to meet up with some friends I hadn't seen in a while. And what I realized after being just immersed in the online world, like speaking of faceless, like anonymous ignition tables all day long, I, I realized like, Poker festivals are just places where everybody's excited to talk about poker. Like they just love poker. Like 2 a.m. I'm standing in line after making day two, getting some food and dude behind me just like starts talking about poker. Like just, you know, it's like, he's just so excited to talk about it just because he loves it so much. Right. Um, It's a game that makes people feel emotions. They love it. Whether they're net winners or net losers, they love, love, love playing this game. And, uh, you know, that's awesome. I, I empathize because I love it too. Maybe not for the same exact reasons, but I do love, have always loved poker. Yeah. I, I think the, the only, um, issue I, I run into there sometimes is that the things that you love about it change over time. And so there is sometimes like the thing that some people want to talk about, like you, you run into these people where they're just like a throbbing wound with whatever bad beat they just had. And, you know, then that's the kind of situation like you're describing. Well, just whoever happens to be in front of them in the food line is going to hear about their bad beat. You know, Hey buddy, you playing the tournament? Listen to what just happened to me. You know, right. and like for them, like that is part of the love is like, they feel that pain so acutely. And, you know, for us, it's like, you've, you've 
heard so many bad beat stories. You've had, it's just not interesting. You know, like I don't want to hear about whatever they had, even if it was like a hand that you want, I'm still not interested. Like, I don't care if it was quads over quads. Like it really needs to be a crazy poker story for me to be interested in just like, like there's no like sequence of cards except, um, I forget who it was. Was it Bryce? Uh, the, the person who had that, like the really nasty beat in the uh, triple draw where, um, with Josh, Josh Arie. Is that, it, he was on the winning end, though, wasn't he? Yeah. It was like fifty yeah. K players championship, I think last yeah, year. Yeah, I, I think it was I think it was Bryce Yaki. I might be wrong about that. Um but whoever was on the lead, like that's interesting to me. Like that's a that's a crazy hand, but like that's what it takes. I mean, I I'm not gonna be interested in whatever like but I know, like I feel bad because I know that these other people are, right? I mean, they're really genuinely passionate about it and they want to like share that like, oh, a fellow poker player, I can share my excitement about this hand that I just saw. And like I feel bad because they're excited about it and I'm I'm not. Um, and we <laughs> But, but I'm not. Like. Doesn't it make you sad that you don't feel these emotions at these hands anymore at this stage in your career? I, just, like, I feel different. I mean, it's not that I'm not interested in stuff. I'm just interested in, in different, different things. things. It's, hard, it's yeah. hard to get your interest in poker. After playing millions of hands, we've seen everything, right? Like there's very, very few experiences that are just brand new that we're like, oh, wow, this is like, this is a pretty interesting hand. I'm going to think about it for 30 to 45 minutes. Whereas like early on in my career, you know, the first few years that I played, you could ask me a hand that happened two years ago and I could recall it in vivid detail. And now I can't recall a hand that I played yesterday. Like, it's like they go in my memory and they're just out. I don't spend any time really thinking about them in depth. It, it kind of makes me a little sad that like, because I, I'm so used to it and it's not, new to me anymore these situations just become so like abc standard that it doesn't really ignite my fire like it once did yeah i guess i just feel like i found different and maybe even more interesting things so like now it's mostly stuff that people do at the table that i find like <laughs> you know a, a, a funny story or just you know people's i just i like the way poker puts people in a pressure cooker you know and you really get to see how people respond when there's money on the line there's ego on the line uh you just you get to see people uh, under pressure and it does make people do crazy stuff. And I often find that stuff funny and or entertaining. That, that's where a lot of my, like the, the stuff that I'm eager to tell someone about when I like a day of poker is over is, you know, how so-and-so responded. It might not even be, you know, a, a, something happened in a poker hand. It might've been, you know, something he said to the cocktail server or just that that's the kind of stuff that, that uh, gets me more interested now. Yeah, for sure. So, so you love the live poker aspect of it after transitioning yeah um I, I used to say like i would never want to you know when i was playing uh online play, i was like oh, i would never just sit and grind like you know live poker all the time um i i found it's a lot more interesting than i was um than i was giving it credit for i used to be very disparaging towards i was oh people with live poker are so miserable i wouldn't want to spend all day with them um but yeah i mean some of it's making friends and some of it is just like like we were talking about earlier finding things that are in fact interesting or empathetic about people that might initially strike you as off-putting but you know getting a little deeper with those people yeah in general i i haven't found that i think the poker world is super negative they they are negative yeah, i, I think ways, i was wrong about that yeah. to be clear. okay cool um let's do lightning round a few a few questions and then we'll get you out of here sir if you could gift all poker players one book to read doesn't have to necessarily be a poker book what would it be and why Exactly right now, I'd kind of like for people to read Native Son, um, which is a novel. Sorry, is, is this too long for a lightning round answer? Should I no, just no, say no. Native Son and be finished? Okay. <laughs> 
this is a novel from 1960s, might even be 1950s, which is about a black man on the south side of Chicago who murders a white woman and is sort of, well, he's on the run from the law, but eventually is caught. And, uh, you know, speaking of, of like empathy, it's, it's a, written by a, um, by a black man, Richard Wright. And, uh, I think it's, it's very, he actually writes in the introduction because he, he had previously written a memoir called Black Boy that, that sold very well, but it was about himself. And, you know, he was a very sympathetic main character. It's kind of about, you know, growing up poor and, it was a successful book, but he said, he said, you know, the problem was it was too easy to be empathetic to the, um, to the main character. You know, he, he wanted to write a book that made you empathetic to a person who had done like a horrible thing. And, um, so I find that book very interesting for that reason. And I think particularly, you know, with the like protests that have been going on so recently in the U S and I guess to some degree around the world, I think it's an interesting subject to think about, uh, what kind of empathy we owe to people even after they've committed a crime. hundred percent, hundred percent native son, check it out. Very necessary in today's day and age to see things from people's perspective. And yeah, it's, um, we just need to do better. Like as, as a society to have empathy for folks and realize that like choosing to lock everybody up is not really a great solution at the end of the day. Like, we want contributing members of society. Obviously, this is good for us. And locking everybody up is just not great. It's just not great. If you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about poker that's not um, legalizing it in the U.S., what would it be and why? Probably banishing 10-handed tables, maybe even making tables eight-handed. Uh, I mean, I guess that increases rake, which maybe isn't great, but I just think everyone enjoys having slightly smaller tables. It's more comfortable for everybody. You get more action, just better. Yeah. Make them all six-handed. That'd be that's a perfect situation. <laughs> um, you, you might be getting your wish. <laughs> that's true. Uh, not in the way that I would like to have my wish granted, right. though. <laughs> uh, if you could direct a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does it say? Have fun. Have fun. You're experiencing something while you're there. It doesn't have to be based on the result of winning or losing in a session. Enjoy the right. experience. What's your current big goal as related to poker? I really don't have one. I'm, I'm not big on, on, on goal setting. And I think particularly now uh, with how much like COVID has disrupted everything, I find it very difficult to project forward into the, into the future. I mean, it's never something I've been big on, but the future right now feels more unpredictable to me than it ever has. Yes. Basically not only related to poker, but like certainly <laughs> in general. In related to poker. <laughs> right. We're, we're getting a firsthand look at just how bad folks are at predicting the future. Yeah. What's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Um, I just finished a book. <laughs> um, actually, I, I do have a good answer to that. Um, I, I, so I realized the, the Boston Debate League that we talked about at the beginning of the, um, the interview it's been now 10 years since I was really, you know, involved with them. Um, I, I left Boston in 2010 and I'm starting to forget some things that probably only I know or remember from that era. So partly for my own sake, I wanted to kind of write down, um, I mean, nowhere near as long as a memoir, but just try to write down some like specific memories that I have and just kind of like tell the story of 
first few years of that organization and that league, partly for my own sake. And, you know, I'll share it with the person who's the current executive director and you know, he can do with it as he pleases. But uh, some of it might be information that, uh, that that he would value having or part of the story that no one involved with the league now really has. Like if, if, if those things exist only in my memory and that memory is starting to get a little fuzzy, uh, I'd like to record them before they um, get further away. Yeah. You just make it up. Just... <laughs> 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 just make up a whole fake story. A bunch of people believe it, whatever. Um, Honestly, that actually did kind of happen um, because th- there's this, I, I am a little bit of a, like, uh, it sounds so grandiose to say like a legendary figure, but <laughs> the, the, the poker part of things is like one of the few things that people involved with the league. Like people, I think a lot of people know my name, but don't really know a lot. They're just like, Oh, that he like played poker and he started this league or something. Um, so like the story that kind of goes around is like, Oh, he won a bunch of money at the world series of poker. And he used that to finance the debate league, which like, I mean, so someone told that story recently and like, I didn't correct them because it wasn't that important to do it. And like, the, it was just like, it wasn't really the point of the event to like tell that story, but it felt weird that like it's been sort of like simplified and, and just like, you know, it, it has, it has become a, like, it's a, own like thing. a game of telephone. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the absence of information. This is why I love transparency so much when it comes to online platforms, just all the things, you know, be transparent. Like I see on like the apps where they take rake, but then they're so opaque about how much rake they're taking. It's very, like there needs to be transparency. Yeah. In the absence of information, people will make up a story <laughs> that fits, right? So like they didn't have the information. They know you play poker. They connected the dots. Voila, you have a right. story. So, you know, always being transparent to me is just, it's just better for everybody. Because like if you're hiding something, people will find out or they'll make up a story that's even worse than yeah. what's actually happening. Yeah, it's, it's funny to think like, you know, Doyle Brunson got a lot of flack for writing Super System because people were like, oh, don't put that stuff out there. Like now, and like, that was a reasonable thing. Like in the, was it the seventies when he wrote that book? Like it was reasonable that you could actually keep that stuff to yourself. Now, I mean, I guess you still see it a little bit on two plus two. People are like, all oh, these training sites giving out information about how to play poker. Like the information is getting out. It's the internet. Like you're not going to keep this stuff bottled up. There's no, uh, and I'd say like the internet has just ruined any hope of like keeping anything bottled up, which I mean, I, I, I think that's a good thing, but it's a thing regardless. Like you might as well make the best of it because there's no going back. Yeah. The genie's out of the bottle. You can't yeah. put that genie back in the bottle. We have to rely on a lot of misinformation, which is very prevalent in the poker sphere that I see just misanalysis, bad training. It's all over the place. So misinformation um it's it's that's that's a real thing and so like plus people you know if information was all people needed there's a quote that i love you know we would all be billionaires with six-pack abs right so it's more (laughs) than just the information that makes the poker player it's actually executing it and so there's still all these barriers to entry to success so back in the day back in doyle's day you can make a good argument nowadays it's like okay well the success barrier is very high, even with the information. So it just is what it is. Yeah. Final question, sir. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, the best place is thinkingpoker.net or at thinkingpoker on Twitter. And that's where you'll find like all the latest podcast episodes, information about coaching, uh, links for buying my books, all that kind of stuff is uh, You'll, you'll get it from one of those two places. 
Awesome. And check out Play Optimal Poker 2, right? Your new book yes, that you that, released. That's a new one. Yep. But if you haven't read Play Optimal Poker 1, probably check that one out first. <laughs> Just skip to Play Optimal Poker 2. That's where you saved the best material. No. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, sir. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Let's do it again in the near future. And uh, hopefully things get back to normal in the live poker world sooner rather than later. Yep. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.